0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com.
1: Restore me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Be good to Zion in your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, or whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word.
0: This is, uh, I have good news and bad news. Bad news is, this is the end of our of our series, our final installment of the Psalm 51. Good news is, it's the end of of Psalm 51. Um, And we can move on to the next thing, but this has been really wonderful. It's been great to dig into this with you. Uh, to hear what God has to say through His Scripture, and when you encounter a passage like Psalm 51, what you're really presented with is a, a really a portrait of a true and genuine expression of the Christian experience. I mean, what we're looking at at Psalm 51, just really boiling it down for you, this is an expression of what it means, feels like, and the process to really grasping what it means to be a Christian. Uh, think about that. If it would be fair to say that there are so many different ways to live out the Christian faith, and the the Christian conviction, meaning that you can be a Christian and disagree with fellow Christians uh, on doctrine. Um, You can be a Christian and have different experiences. You can worship differently, for sure. We know that. You can have different traditions and styles um, and and even different uh, ways that you might live. But what this psalm is concerned with is not... Not all the different forms that Christianity might take. But this is concerned with the essential elements for every person who calls himself or herself a Christian. And this is what this psalm is all about. And So no matter what your background is or convictions are, this psalm brings us together to look upon what a portrait of what it means and what it feels like to follow God. A Christian is a person who at some point has had an awakening. He or she has at some point demonstrated the cry of the heart uh, that realizes their own sinfulness, uh, their own helplessness to, to do anything about it, and a cry for God's mercy, asking God for help. Help me, Lord, for I have sinned against you, and there's nothing in myself that can actually make it any better. And then we willingly turn from our sin and turn to the help that God provides in his righteousness alone. And so listen to this if it's a a definition of what a Christian person is. A Christian is a person who doesn't just have a new and improved behavior, but a new heart entirely, a new self, a new identity, and is a new creation through the work of the Holy Spirit. In this portion that we read today as we finish up this psalm, is about the consequences of such an action in a person's life. If these things truly happen, if we've been given a new heart, and if we truly have convictions of what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what will happen? What will we live like? What will we feel and think and do? How will we behave? What will be our dreams and our passions and our goals? And this portion really answers those questions for us. Here's, a, here's an example. I admit it's a little irrele- irreverent, uh, but, but that's okay. It's not like, it's un, you know, it's, it's what I do every week. But, but I think it will make my, my point. Let's say you really love football. You really love flag football. You play on the weekends with your buddies. Um, every weekend you're playing, but you're not great. Uh, you, you know you could be better. You're not the best. You're not the first person picked to be on your team, but you're also not the last. Uh, but you just keep going out there and you're trying your best, and one day, uh, you come to the team before you play, and you come with some pretty interesting news. You come with the news that you have been filled with the presence of Tom Brady. <laughs> I told you, a little irreverent. Uh, we should, if that is true, we should come to expect you to play differently. But here's, here's another one. Your house is a mess. Kitchen counter is always cluttered. Every drawer in your house is a drunk drawer, Okay. Uh, You've been on an episode of Hoarders. I mean, you're not proud of it, but this is just your life. One day you wake up and convinced and communicate to your husband or wife that you have been filled with the presence of tidy expert Marie Kondo. You know who I'm talking about. Just Google it. Um, We should come to expect that your house will start looking different. This is what David's talking about there are consequences to a life that has truly been changed by God. A life that has truly been changed and filled with the grace of God. To say that we trust Jesus, he is our hope, and our righteousness, then your life should look differently. And before we get started in this passage and really unpack some of these consequences, uh, there's something really helpful to remember here. We, We could never know what it means to look like, a Christian we never know what it feels like to be a Christian apart from what the Bible tells us now we can say this is what I think it means to be a Christian this is what I imagine it should feel like to be a Christian this is what the world has come to acknowledge what it means to be a Christian here's what our, our culture or Christianity has changed and you know changed in many different ways over over millennia but before we even get started, we do not even know what it means to be a Christian apart from what the Bible tells us. And so we go to the scriptures and we say, God, what does it look like to follow you? What does it mean? What are the consequences of a life that has been changed by you? And we cannot come up with any answer to that question apart from what God's word says. And what he tells us in hundreds, if not thousands of stories, throughout his word, is that every person who has truly grasped the blessing of salvation has experienced essentially the same thing. A sorrow over their sinfulness, a confession of their helplessness before God to do anything about it, a cry for God's mercy, a transfer of trust that was once relying on themselves, and a transfer of trust to God and his promises and his righteousness every single story in scripture of one who has been saved by God follows that exact formula with no exception. And it's no different for any of us who desire to call ourselves a Christian. John Newton, the writer of the most covered song in the history of music, as far as we know, Amazing Grace. It's been redone over 6,000 times, more than any song that has ever been written. John Newton, not to be confused with Olivia Newton-John, but this is, this is what he says on his deathbed. He's actually, some think that this might be his, one of his final, final words. He says, although my memory is nearly gone, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. This is faith, a renouncing of everything we are apt to call our own and relying wholly on, upon the blood of God righteousness, and intercession of Jesus. And this is true. We've been talking about this. This is what David has been communicating to us through this psalm. But the question, what we're going to talk about today is, if this is true, if it's really true, if you actually really believe that, uh, it's impossible to stay the same. It's impossible to, to live the same before, as, as the same as before you believed something like this. We, are, we become changed people. So I want to look at three things that David mentions as consequences of God's work of grace in our life. With a humble heart, evaluate yourself in light of these things uh, and possibly see an area where God desires to show you a deeper sense of what it means to trust Him, uh, to rest in Him, to uh, have a sense of the gift of what it means to be called His children. Evaluate yourself in light of these. And first, why don't we go to the first one. As David jumps in, we will have an unnatural joy. We'll have an unnatural, unnatural joy. Joy is a really loaded and confusing concept, especially within Christianity, especially as we're talking about Christian joy. What does it mean to have Christian joy? So that we want to understand what David truly means in verse 12 when he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David had known joy, he lost it, and now he wants it back. He's asking for it back. So what is this strange thing called Christian joy? And what does it look like to feel it and to manifest it in our life? The first thing, the first thing important to mention is that this kind of joy has nothing to do with natural temperament. It has nothing to do with how we are in our temperament or personality Temperaments vary greatly from person to person, don't they? Even from Christian to Christian. One can be resting in Christ uh, and be a, have a certain temperament, and someone else can be resting in Christ and have a very different temperament. There seem to be some people who uh, are born with a kind of, of morbid or introspective or miserable or unhappy temperament. You know, you know who you are. And they become Christians, and that doesn't change. They still become particularly morbid and introspective and miserable and just unhappy people. And then there are others who are born naturally cheerful and optimistic and playful. And they become Christians and they stay just as annoying as they were before. You know? You can figure out which temperament I might be. Look at these two places. Uh, David mentions joy in this passage. Verse 8. And verse 12. In verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. And in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David is not saying to God, God, my life is so miserable. Please, just let me be happy again. He's not saying that at all. That sounds a lot like our prayers. That's not what he is asking. As if he is saying, tell me, he, he, he says, let Your joy, shower over me. Let me hear joy and gladness from you. Like, tell me again how it is that you feel about me. Because it makes me so happy when I'm reminded of that. Shower me with it. Pour it over me. Cover me in your delight and gladness. And notice how he says joy of of your salvation. Not joy of my salvation. That changes the meaning drastically. It's it's an alien joy. It's not a joy that David musters up from within, but a joy that is poured out over him. He does not say and plead with God, uh, let me be the person I once was, but rather tell me again about your steadfast love and that you won't give up on me. And the joy and gladness that you have for me. Because I have nothing in myself that can make me feel that kind of happiness. Joy in the salvation of the Lord is the feeling that we have when we are sure to our core that God looks over us, even in the midst of our sin, still with delight in who we are. And in loving us and saving us. It's that joy that comes from that, not from our circumstances. In the broken world that, in which we live, my guess is that many of you have very, very few people in your life, if anyone at all, who you are convinced look at you in that way. That no matter who you are or what you do or how you fail, can still look at you with joy and gladness. My guess is you might not have anyone that you are convinced truly loves you that way. Maybe one person, maybe two, but maybe you're still skeptical. Maybe you're worried that they can't really love you in that way. This is what joy looks like. It's to truly have people and to know that no matter what happens, no matter what I do or how I fail, that person still looks over me with joy and gladness. And David says, Remind me of that. Let me feel that again. Let me feel the joy of your salvation that you have rescued me. Isn't that what we we all really want? To experience that kind of love? That's what we were created for. We were created to experience that, to know that, to rest in that. And actually, we were created to know nothing differently than that. We were created to know this to no end. That someone could look at us and for once not find something always to pick apart about us that should change but just to delight in us. And joy is, this joy is not only offered to all to experience this kind of love, but it is a symptom. It's a symptom of one who has truly transferred their trust from themselves to the trust in the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for us. The joy, this kind of joy, is a consequence of knowing the love of God and the consequence of new life in Jesus. An unnatural joy that we know comes from the outside. It doesn't just mean I just feel happy and cheerful. It means that no matter what my circumstances are in my life, there's an unshakable confidence and joy in the love of God that he has for me. And nothing can change that. And so don't you see when we look at joy in that way, that Christian joy is entirely independent of our circumstances, so much so that we can say we can be sad And still be joyful. We can be suffering deeply and still be joyful. We can be confused and betrayed by others and wounded and weary and tired and broken in spirit and still be very joyful. See, these are are not, they are not, joyful is not a synonym for comfort and ease in life, but rather independent from it. How? How is that even possible? Because it's a possession. This joy is a possession that comes from the outside. It's tied to God's delight over us. And it's not tied to our changing circumstances. How is it possible, you might ask, that we can have that kind of joy even when life is really troubling and when it's really difficult? Well, the good news is because that joy doesn't come from inside you. It's a possession that has been given to you. It's a possession that comes from the outside by God's grace. It's credited to your account. How, I have, how can I be financially wealthy and yet struggle with so much debt? Well, because God's credited your account. He put the money in there. Of, of course, you're right to say, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this hole. God says, you're just admitting your helplessness. And my joy comes from the outside. I'm convinced there, there's really no natural temperament that is more godly than another. A naturally nice person is no closer to saving themselves than a bitter and mean person. A naturally calm and disarming and patient person, like myself, (laughs) is no closer to heaven than a hot-headed rageaholic. Do you believe that? If you don't, that's what it looks like to try to save yourself. That you think there's something inside of you naturally or something that you've done good on your own behalf that God will look on and say, this is why I love you. This is why you're good. The psalm teaches us that's not what it means to become a Christian. Christian salvation, on the other hand, is something that God possesses and he alone has the right to give it and he gives it to us apart from which we would never, ever find it. It's not something we accomplish. So do you see that we will have an unnatural joy? It's a characteristic of those who truly grasp the gospel. And yet it's something we continue to wrestle with and struggle with, and, and we could cry out like David, I, I once had it, I feel like I've forgotten it, and now can I have it again? We could cry out. The Psalms are a script for us. They become a script that we can talk to God in this way. I had this joy, I forgot what it was, and in its place I put a a false joy in my circumstances. Return to me the joy of your salvation. Remind me of what it's like to live in the confidence of your love for me, not in the confidence of my circumstances. Would you evaluate yourself on that? Repent where you feel there's repentance needed. Confess your need to pray like this and ask God for his mercy. Let's move on to the second consequence of God's work of grace in our life. We obey. Of course we obey. But the reasons for why we obey are now different. You know, Before a person truly grasps grace and the meaning of grace, we obey for one reason, one reason only, to get blessing from God. Now, we go about getting blessing from God in different ways, whether it be to avoid punishment, which is, in a way, a blessing from God, and so we obey God so that we're not punished by God. Or we attempt to manipulate God into getting something from him. So it's kind of like this, it's this idea of Christian karma. If I do this, then God will do this. If I don't do this, then God will show favor to me. And before we truly understand the gospel, that's the only reason we do something good. To get blessing from God or to avoid punishment. But the Psalms flip the formula. Psalm 51 flips the formula. Religion says, if I obey then God will bless me. The gospel, says if I, I, the gospel says, I will obey because God has blessed me. The psalm shows us obedience, clearly, but for completely different reasons. I want to read again verse 12 to 15, slowly, so that we can see where, we, where this shows up. 12 to 15, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. David is giving us a formula. David is saying, I will live for you, work for you, glorify you, tell other people about you. Why? Why? As payment to God for all he has done? No way. All of his actions are tied to the good deeds that God has done for him. Why will David, how will David be able to do this? What's his motivation? Because of the joy in what God has done for him. Pastor Kevin DeYoung calls this good deeds based on good news. A book I recommend to any of you wanting to know the importance of godly obedience that flows from gospel motivation is a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. And in there he talks about good deeds based on good news. Grace is the engine of all obedience. We obey not because we have to, but because our hearts have been transformed. And the Bible even tells us that our good deeds done and our desire to be obedient, when it doesn't flow from grace, God doesn't receive it. He says, I don't care about that. You're wasting your time. But good deeds that flow from a gratitude and affection and love of a transformed heart, well, those are sweet fragrance and offering up to heaven. When the gospel changes our hearts, it will, it will overflow into obedience. The inward working of God's grace on our hearts overflows into an outward working of obedience. It does this in a couple ways. Let me go through two real quickly. When we reflect on what God has done for us, it results in obedience that flows from gratitude. Gratitude. Imagine your car breaks down. You get an estimate. You realize you don't have any money to fix it you're without a car. Someone steps in, buys you a new car, completely free, you offer to pay for some, you offer to get on an installment plan, Uh, you offer to clean their house, we already know it's filthy. Um, And he says, no, it's completely free. And then you're driving your brand new car, and you're feeling really grateful. And you see this person who bought your car for you, he's walking on the side of the road. And you stop to give him a ride. Why do you do that? Do you do that because you're like, I know it's the right thing to do. I really should be a good person. He's having a hard day, and this is what a Christian's supposed to do. No, I hope not. You'd be like, of course. Of course I'll give you a ride. You can drive. I'll pay for gas. You gave this to me. Of course I'm going to give you a ride. I will pick you up anytime you need me to. But maybe before you got this free car and you saw this person driving on the road, you probably had different motivations to get him to where he needs to go. Maybe I'll pick him up because if I give him a ride, this person will like me and we'll be friends. I'll do it because it's the right thing to do. You do it out of a sense of obligation. You do it out of a sense of duty. You do not do it out of a sense of joy and gratitude for what this person has done for you. So you see, you can be doing the same action for different motivations, different reasons obedience that flows from gratitude. This is one of the ways that we do this. And when our heart is changed, when we reflect on what God's done for us, we are grateful. And when God tells us to obey, we say, of course. I delight in you. You have given me my life. And you are good. You have proven yourself faithful. Of course I will serve you with my whole life. Because you've loved me. If we understand all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we too would be eager to obey, joyful, give our life entirely to him. This is what Jesus tells his disciples when he says, this is how you know the love of God, that you obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. He's saying this is how you know your heart's been transformed, that you delight in obeying God because you know how much he loves you. But someone who has not been transformed for the grace of God says, I guess I got to do this. I don't want to, but I just got to. And I don't want people to look at me in a weird way. Uh, I don't want to be a kind of person that sins. So we have all these different reasons for why we obey, but it's not joy. It's not gratitude. Let's look at the second reason why we are motivated, how it changes in our heart. Second, we're motivated to obey the, the gospel when we remember our new identity in Christ. Real briefly, if we it kind of flows from the first, but it's a little different. If we are loved with an everlasting love and truly believe God's love for us, why would you feel your need to prove yourself to anyone? If you truly feel that God loves you with an everlasting love, why do you feel a need to prove your worth to anyone? If you're adopted into God's family by grace, why do you feel jealous for anything that happens? God has, in, has, has adopted you into his family where you become heirs of the riches of heaven. Why are you jealous when anything happens to anyone else? Why do you covet? Why do you envy? Why do you seek the harm of other people? When they do, why do you wish their ill will? Why? When you have been given everything. If you're heirs to the riches of heaven, why do you envy and lust and covet and grasp to control your life? When God says your life is in his hands and nothing can take you out of his love. You see, the more we realize our identity and position with God because of Jesus, the less we will search elsewhere for satisfaction and identity. Right? Because we're satisfied in who God says we are and what he has done. Grace is the only true change agent in our life. Nothing else will work. Obedience, therefore, to God, is not the result of a can-do attitude, but is the result of the inward working of the gospel in our lives to exercise gratitude for what Jesus has done and faith in all that he says that we are as adopted and rescued people. This is why we obey Wow, it was really hard to boil this down to 3 things today. But I'm going to I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay at 3. Don't let me go to 4. I really want to. Let's go to the third. And final. We don't see our salvation as merely a private matter. When we hear the gospel, like the words that we use in Christianity and the gospel, like forgiveness and Growth and salvation and sin. We almost always think of these words and concepts in a personal way. We say, my salvation, my sin, my growth, my redemption, my salvation. And don't get me wrong, the gospel is deeply personal, but it's not private. It's not between us and God only when your grasp of what Jesus has done for you becomes the center of your life, it will cause you to look beyond yourself. Mainly because you're keenly aware of the blessings of the gospel have come beyond yourself. It's the opposite of what happens at a piñata party. I went to yesterday. Uh, I have the piñata, and everyone hits it, and the blessings of God flows out. And every kid takes a bag and gets as much as they can and goes in the corner and eats all their candy alone. Okay? That's what we do with our Christianity. The blessings of God are poured out and we get as much as we can and we say, this is mine. You got yours. This is mine. Boycott piñata parties for the sake of the gospel. It is deeply personal. It is not private. In fact, it's very public. David does this. So many of the benefits of David's restoration are not about him. But focus on what God desires to do in the world through David's repentance. And God's blessing to David. Do good to Zion. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. He's saying, do, like, build your kingdom. Uh, do good to the people of God. Fulfill your purposes in the world. That's what he's saying. Consider the last time you were confronted with sin, convicted of sin, wrestled with the guilt of sin, confessed that sin to God, and offered up a prayer of repentance. Did you ever have in mind the purposes of God that he wished to do to the rest of the world through your forgiveness? Probably not. <laughs> Do you ever have in mind God's purposes beyond your own comfort in that moment? Have you ever said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, for the sake of Tucson. Forgive me of my sins. Does that sound weird? Give me a new heart for the sake of my children, for the sake of my spouse. For the sake of the purposes that you have in my workplace, let me not fall into temptation today. Well, let them do their thing and I'll do my thing. David doesn't do that, nor should any of God's people. Have you ever prayed God for the sake of my neighbor, let me not fall into bitterness today? We don't pray like that. We say God, I want to be comfortable, I want to be happy. Right now I feel guilty, make me feel better. And then as soon as we feel better, we go apart, we go We go on with our life, and our neighbors go on with our life, their life, and we don't think again about it. God, for the sake of my spouse, for the sake of my boyfriend, for the sake of my girlfriend, let me not fall into sexual temptation today. For the purposes that you have for their life, forgive me. Doesn't it sound strange to pray like that? It is possible that you often seek your own private blessings of the gospel to answer only the internal struggle that you have with sin, but no one else's. God's gospel purposes do not begin or end with us. I told you it's something that comes from the outside, and its gospel plan goes way beyond us too. We're not the center of the universe. We're not even the center of God's plans or purposes in the world but he invites us into those plans and into those purposes. He blesses us to be a blessing. David reveals an important and necessary perspective in the person who truly grasps the gospel and what it means to be a Christian, to know Jesus. The gospel is not just the answer to our internal struggle with sin, but it's also the answer to our failure to love others as we're supposed to to engage in culture, to live on mission, to be a faithful witness. The gospel is the answer for our failure to live a public faith and to look beyond our own selves. If the gospel is renewing you internally, it will give you a burden for others. That's what will happen. It has, as David proclaims, for him. It is the good news to Zion. It's the good news not just for David. It is the good news for the kingdom of God and his purposes all throughout the world. Jesus teaches us how to pray. Where he says pray like this, he says pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It comes right after David or Jesus tells us to pray that God would forgive us of our sins. God, forgive me for the purposes that you desire to, to unfold for the whole world. That's how we should pray. When we pray, we confess sin, we seek forgiveness, and we should be praying that Jesus would not only change our hearts, but that his will would be done in the world. With everyone else. The grace of God is always propelling us forward. Forward to love. Forward in the love of God and the love for others. I want to end our time in this psalm. End in the series. I mean, this is, this is like match set point right here. As a... I want to look at the invitation of David in verse 13. Where he says, "Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you." This is David's hope through this huge saga that David has been through. Confrontation of sin, repentance of sin, grasping of God's mercy, trust in the gospel, all of that has happened. He's weak, he's wounded, he's tired, and he says, do it all. I'm going to teach transgressors your way so that they so sinners will come back. He says I want to spend time persuading people to come to God's mercy, and that's what I want to do with you. I want to try to persuade you that to fail to miss out to fail to rest in the gospel is to miss out on the greatest And most wonderful gift that you will ever know. You will never find satisfaction apart from this. And David is pleading, and I plead with you, that if you fail to rest in the gospel and cry out for God's help and mercy and forgiveness, you will miss out on the greatest joy that can ever be known. Come to God. Face your sin, be honest with yourself, believe in him and see the joy of his salvation and joy and gladness over you in spite of your failure and weakness and failure to have the record that he has asked you to because he has expressed this joy and gladness in his son Jesus who took your sin, nailed it on the cross, defeated death and the devil rose from the grave unto new life to give us a new heart that is transformed entirely, not just new behavior, but a new creation. Are you still trying to make yourself a Christian? Still trying to be the person with the proper temperament and the proper behavior and the proper theology? If so, you will never know the joy of salvation. To say that we must become better before we become a Christian is to deny the very premise of the gospel itself. God offers to create in us a new heart of what Jesus has done for us. And this new heart can make the worst of sinners happy. And the most frustrated of sinners assured of God's faithful and steadfast love. Be honest with yourself and give yourself to God.